What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 12 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'd like to start today by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation on whose land this podcast was recorded. I'd also like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging as well as to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to this episode of the ERRR. This episode we're talking to Professor Linda Graham. Linda is a professor in the School of Early Childhood and Inclusive Education at the Queensland University of Technology. Her research interests concern the role of education policy and schooling practices in the development of disruptive student behaviour and the implementation of responses to children who are difficult to teach. Linda has an illustrious career, including Macquarie University's Early Career Research of the Year Award and the Australian Association of Research and Education Early Career Research Award. Linda is currently leading a six-year longitudinal study tracking the school liking, learning, language and behaviour of Queensland prep children through to the end of grade five. She is also currently leading an Education Horizon project looking at student voice, video-recorded classroom interactions and teacher feedback in order to determine how to better develop positive learning environments for high-need Queensland secondary schools. Linda is an unrelenting advocate for the fact that inclusive education is a foundational platform for broader social inclusion and the development of an inclusive democracy. In line with this, the paper that Linda nominated for this ERRR episode is entitled To Educate to be Smart, Disaffected Students and the Purpose of School in the Not-So-Clever Lucky Country. This article opened up a wide-ranging discussion about different educational pathways in Australia, the role of expectations in the classroom, and some of the political push and pull factors that have brought Australian education to the point that it currently is at the moment. We hear Linda's take on questions such as, what is school for? And much, much more. So without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 12 of the ERRR with Professor Linda Graham. Linda Graham, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Oh, welcome. Thanks. Okay, great. All right. The first question we usually ask people is, uh, if you're at a party and you meet someone and they say, hi, Linda, what is it that you do? What's your answer? That's funny, actually, because um, quite often I just say I'm a researcher and uh, most of us are actually quite, um, I guess, shy about what we do. We don't... You know, I'd never say something like, oh, I'm a professor of such and such or whatever because people generally don't want to talk to you after that. Mm. <laughs> so I just, you know, feel fairly quiet about it and say I'm a researcher and, and then they say, in what? Um, and then I say, education. <laughs> so they kind of generally have to pull it out of me yep, because, yep. you know, if you're in a, a, a barbecue, quite often people, when you tell them what you do, they don't feel like they have anything in common with you anymore. So Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I'm a bad barbecue person. <laughs> Fair enough. So so would you like to tell us a little bit about your story? Um where are you right now and then and how did you come to be there? How did I get here? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So as I mentioned before, I'm a professor of um, inclusive education 
at uh, Queensland University of Technology. And uh, oh, how did I get here? It's been a very long road. Enjoyable, but a pretty long road. So um, I I didn't do what everybody else, you know, what you know, the good student does, which is to uh, behave themselves at school and work hard and you know do that kind of the right progression, which is to finish school when you're supposed to and then go to university and then, you know, and then you're sort of 21, 22, uh, once you're qualified, to do something that you always plan to do. Mm. So, no, I didn't do that. Um, I, I was asked to leave <laughs> school oh, really? um, when I was, as soon as I turned 16, pretty much. So mid-year 10, and, um, but, you know, it's fascinating because reading that, the paper that we wrote, it was, it was a bit of a labour of love for me, actually, to write that paper because so much of it was familiar to me. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I mean, when I busted out of school, it was 1988, and there was, uh, it was just uh, on the... You know, the sort of just before the uh, recession that we had to have and um, when youth unemployment went sky high and all that sort of stuff. And um, so I left school and my mother, the, well, the day after I left school, she took me to a place that you wouldn't know of because <laughs> it doesn't exist anymore. And that was called the Commonwealth Employment Service or the CES. And um, and she basically said, okay, you have to go and get a job. Um, so I was 16, which I, you know, I've got a 15-year-old and an 18-year-old and I look at them and think, oh, my God, what did I think? You know, I thought I was old and experienced and no. Anyway, so um, I signed up for something called an Australian traineeship, which... I nearly got kicked out of as well. <laughs> and that was in office procedures. And I was, my dad called me the secretary from hell because I pretty much was never very good at typing. <laughs> but, um, anyway, so I did that course three days, no, two days a week, and I worked for three days a week. My first pay packet was $111. I will never forget that. And um, went through Williams Business College, which is now doesn't exist, and got to the end of it and thought, oh, my God, that was terrible. I uh, hated every minute of it. Mm. And uh, so anyway, for the next five years after that, I kind of wandered the wilderness of different jobs. I went to TAFE to do a marketing certificate because my father was in marketing and I thought that was an interesting, well-paid thing to do. Hated that too. And uh, and eventually he said to me when I was 21 and had probably been sacked for about the fourth time, <laughs> said to me that I needed to go to university because that's where the people who think like me belong, <laughs> which was a... I didn't know whether that was a compliment or what, but I <laughs> took it as one. 
So I said to him, well, yeah, but how can I do that? Um, because I don't even have a U-turn certificate. And so he said that I could move home with and live with him and that he'd already checked it out and that I could do something called um, the adult matriculation in the HSC. So I was 21. And at 22, I went and did that. My first assessment was on, uh, so in English, it was the crucible and I failed it and I was absolutely terrified because English had always been my easiest, you know, favourite subject mm. and I thought, oh, my God, I might actually fail this. What will I do with my life if I do? It was the first time I'd ever really thought about that. Mm. And um, so I knuckled down <laughs> and listened to my teachers and I had the most brilliant English teacher um, ever. She didn't like me and I didn't like her. But we worked together every week. I would give her an essay. She would rip it to shreds and and then I would take it back and work on it again. And it kept going like that for the whole year. And at the end of the year, I think I was one of the only ones that got into university. Wow. So there you go. And I was going to be an English and history teacher. So I started a um, Bachelor of Arts majoring in English Literature and Modern History. And towards the end of that, I'd fallen in love with study of education because I was doing a minor in education as I was going through. And I fell out of love of reading literature and or because basically I couldn't read for enjoyment anymore. And I know that feeling. I also realised at that point that schools hadn't really changed. And I also knew from what I'd been studying that teachers were becoming less and less powerful in the system and I didn't think I'd be able to survive in it. So for my decision at that point was that I didn't want to be a teacher after all of that, didn't know what I did want to be. Um, so... I went and had a child instead. <laughs> I, well, while I was at, um, at TAFE, I found a husband in, in the bar, uh, which is where I spent half my time, and um, and we got married in between and all that sort of stuff. And um, so I took some time out and then came back to do a master's and then went and did a PhD because I couldn't walk away from education. Cool. So that's it. So it sounds like you you went through. You've seen many of. You've personally seen many different parts of the system. You you mentioned TAFE. You've different different later later school kind of options. I was wondering, could you paint a little bit of a picture of what things look like now in terms of TAFE vocational education? You used a lot of these terms in your paper. Um, I'd I'd love for you to like tease out what some of the differences are in between them and and what what, what does it look like at the moment. Well, if I was to compare now with um, with the chances and the opportunities that I received, I don't think I would be where I am today because um, those opportunities don't really exist anymore. And I think there's a number of different factors that are playing into that. One of them is that business does not, but business doesn't want to train anybody anymore. They want people to come in fully fledged, you know, ready to just slot in 
and they expect that those people are going to work for little money as well. Um, but they're not investing in them in the same way that, you know, when I left school, I, you know, I didn't actually, even though there was this great big um, recession going on and high youth unemployment, and I had absolutely no idea in the world, no clue, I still managed to get a job and I still had many people who trained me to do what I was doing. So in some of the jobs that I had, and I actually managed to, I guess, progress pretty quickly. So one of my last jobs before leaving um, marketing was working for Pirelli, you know, the people that, that make tyres. Okay, well, a lot, a lot of people don't know that they make um, telecommunication cables as well. They were the first ones to create fibre optic cables. And during the recession, they realised that um, there was no market in Australia, so they suddenly had to start exporting. So at 19 years old, I was responsible for making sure that all of our, well, basically from tender sort of process through to the end, my job was to make sure that orders got to places like, you know, China, Brunei, Libya even, and it was all on letter of credit. And if I stuffed that up, they didn't have to pay. So it was a hugely um, demanding job for someone who was 19 years of age, and I was taught how to do it. People don't do that anymore. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is that TAFE is now extremely expensive. It's been gutted. It's not the institution um, that it once was in that it is being forced to compete with, I guess, for-profit players. And part of the problem with that is that the for-profit players can do can cherry-pick um, in terms of the courses that they want to provide. Um, but also, because they have to compete, they, you know, there are more profitable students and then there are less profitable students. And the ones that, you know, people like me, I would have been a less profitable student. I would have been high risk. But TAFE back in the 1980s was able to take that on no problem. Uh, now, not so much the case. Why is that? In terms of the amount of amount that it costs. So young people um, from disadvantaged backgrounds, and I wasn't from a disadvantaged background, but um, there are things called student loans. Um, so the way that the, the vocational uh, sector is funded is very different to the university sector. So there's often barriers up front for young people to be able to get in and do these courses. So, yeah, it's... That's, I think, the, the essential differences between then and now. Okay. Why do you think, why do you think things changed? Why do you think that um, employers don't want to train people anymore? Why do you think TAFE's been gutted? You know, it's interesting. I, it's, over time, you know, I think part of the issue that we have, and I've thought about this many times, but we have so much focus on... Um, shareholders on, um, you know, maximising profit for shareholders principally that 
there's actually this, it's about what they can get out of it, not so much what they can put in. So, and I think over time there has been policies that governments have put together because they're beholden to, you know, business lobbies and all that sort of stuff. But take the the most recent one. So they're getting rid of penalty rates for young people who are trying to, you know, so the same people who are trying to put themselves through vocational or university education, they're the same ones that are doing those kinds of jobs and they're going to lose an awful lot of pay for that. But then at the very same time, the government is putting together policies that promotes um, things like internships, low-paid internships. You know, I mean, there's also there's a lot of companies out there that say, well, you know, unpaid internships come along and we'll give you a job at the end of it and one never materialises. Mm. You know, so there's, I think there's a lot of, you know, we, like, for example, we have low wage, wage growth at the moment. If you look at that and think about well, what's behind that, and it's about maximisation of profit. So I think all of those things added together, you know, we have an award system and a wage system, but there are ways of undermining that. And these sorts of policies or practices are ways of undermining that. Okay, so that's, that's profit maximisation as, as a driving factor. And um, I guess why profit maximization has become a higher priority over that time period is perhaps a bigger question. Um, but there, there was another thing that you talked about a lot in your paper, which was about what you called, a, and you kind of touched on it, but the policy preoccupation. And this is essentially the way that various governments and various reviews, for example, you mentioned the Fin Review that set a target in when was it, in 1991, um, that by 2001, 95% of 19-year-olds would have a year 12 degree or equivalent. Not quite there. Uh, I never got there. No. But you also talked about a whole heap of other push factors um, for why... You essentially said this policy preoccupation creates a a system or a a situation in which um, vocational education becomes of less high status than university education. And what that does is in a market-based system, it changes the demand, increases the demand for university, decreases the demand for vocational education, and as a result, drives more money towards university education. So you end up with this vicious kind of cycle. I was wondering if you wanted to talk to that at all. It does, but there's, I think, with all of these things, um, and this is what makes education research so interesting, is that it's, it's always you know, multifactorial in that there's always so many different things that are feeding into a particular problem. So, yes, they have, you know, they've increased or tried to increase the number of young people. There's been a policy that was designed to have 40% of 24, 25 to 40, right, what, hang on, 25 to 34 year olds, I think it was. Yep. 25 to 34, yeah. Holding a university degree. But if you think about that, that's, that's still only 40%. Uh, and so what about the other 60? Um, so it's, it's almost like our governments have, I guess, limited attention. And, and I think part of the issue has been that 
we because we have a federalized system, we have um, state governments who are doing one thing, and they are responsible for TAFE. So state governments are trying to address costs to their own budget. So a lot of them have been making decisions um, about TAFE and basically allowing TAFE to wither on the vine. And meanwhile, the federal government has um, opened up a, a vet market, if you like. So we've had all of these, I guess, policies that are coming in at different levels and from different angles, and it's just all of them, they're not, there isn't one body that is overseeing education holistically, you know, in terms of what you do in early childhood, what you do in, you know, school education and what you do in, in further education in university. So it's it's almost like they're dealing with these things in isolation and making policies that that distort the system and create problems, but because it's so complex, they don't know how to fix it. But certainly, and I'm not saying that the university, the policies that they have introduced for university is is a bad thing, but what they've done at the same time is, you know, they've looked after universities, but they've screwed over the, the VET and TAFE um, sector. And the problem with that is what do you do for the 60% who are somewhere in the middle and most especially, what do you do with the percent that I'm talking about in this paper who are absolutely dependent on not just, you know, I guess those certificate three, four um, diploma type courses, they're dependent on the bridges that you need to get to. And I was just talking with someone who um, uh, has a flexible um, learning school on Monday. And one of the other things that has happened as well is that the federal government back in 2014 killed off services like Youth Connections. So, you know, that's another piece, part of the policy piece that has gone in and affected everything in this area. And what it means is a complete dead end for these kinds of kids. And they're exactly the ones who need you know, more than a dead end. So I think that, don't know whether that answered your question. <laughs> Maybe it's a good time for us to focus a little bit more detail on your paper or the paper that you nominated for today. So the paper you nominated was um, To Educate to Be Smart, Disaffected Students and the Purpose of School in the Not-So-Clever Lucky Country. It's a mouthful, isn't it? It is a bit of a mouthful, but, but it, that's good. Um, so what you did is you took... A group of students from mainstream school, a group of students from behavioural school, which is essentially students who didn't fit in other schools, got kicked out or asked to leave and ended up in this behaviour school, and then, a, uh, and then a group of students in mainstream school who were classified as having disruptive behaviour, and you asked them a bunch of questions. Um, I'll just briefly go through the main findings as, as, I, as I read them, um, and then we'll, we'll see what, what, you, what you thought was the most important of the findings. So one of the questions you asked was, what is the purpose of school? And you found that between your three groups, there was really no significant difference. Uh, and the two, the two main things that they said were school is to learn and school is to get a job. Yeah. Um, you then asked, um, is that important to you? The majority of students in all three groups said that these two things were important to them. 
Um, you asked, do you enjoy schoolwork? And we saw a bit of... Except there was a significant difference in that um, the group in the behaviour school, there was a significant difference with more of them saying no. Yep. Okay. Okay. Which worried me. Yes. So that was in relation to the question, is that important to you? Okay. Got it. There was then the question, do you enjoy schoolwork? And, we, and there was mostly a positive response from mainstream and mostly negative from the behavioural school group. And you also asked, do you know what you want to do when you leave school? And most students did know what or have an idea, but there was just that trend for those in behavioural schools to head more towards a vocational and trades end of thing. So, so if that's kind of the findings in a nutshell, what really was there anything that surprised you out of those findings? And if not, what do you think was the most important thing for any readers to take away when they, um, when they read this paper? Um, yeah, look, I was, surprised by, I was surprised by the honesty of um, these kids in that, you know, so many of them participated in these interviews and they didn't, they didn't give silly answers, they didn't muck up, they didn't, you know, they were... These were meant to be the hardest of the hardcore and they really took it seriously. So for a lot of them, it was the first time that anyone had ever really asked them how they felt about anything. So I was quite interested to see that, you know, there was no difference in, in what they said was the purpose of school. There was only There was only the one who said that it was so his parents could get rid of him for the day. You know, you would expect a higher rate of that kind of answer from... But he also might have been being truthful. Sorry? That might have also been truly what he thought as well. He might have been being honest. <laughs> that could be. Um, the, is that important to you? It didn't surprise me, but it really worried me because I thought, oh, no, um, that is just going to completely confirm what so many people already think about these kids. And I felt I felt a huge amount of responsibility to make sure that we really drilled into what was behind that because, uh, and that's why I think mixed methods research is so important because if we had just run the numbers and then reported these and not looked into what was driving that, then, you know, people would quite understandably say, oh, yeah, you know, these kids don't care about school, they don't value education. You know, that's not what we found. Do you enjoy schoolwork? No, that that did not surprise me at all. I already expected that. Do you know what you want to do? Yeah, I was, I wasn't, I was pleasantly surprised. Because, again, the prevailing, you know, because we interviewed principals um, and a lot of people before we spoke to these kids and, uh, and as well, you know, what the common discourse is. And a lot of that is that they don't care about school um, and, they, you know, they don't really have any aspiration. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that these kids actually did know what they wanted to do um, and that they had thought about it, you know, it was something that they wanted um, and they weren't just coming out with things like race car driver or whatever, you know, and then the what do you want to, yeah, with the what you want to be. But So I guess 
I was pleasantly surprised by a lot of it. Linda, can I just ask a clarifying question about the behaviour schools? I feel like they're known by a different name in Victoria. They might be known as teaching units here. Are the behaviour schools that you're talking about short-term schools for students when they're removed or are they long-term? I can ask that question because, um, yes, it is a difference between a lot of the, the types of schools that are – because Victoria's got a lot of flexible learning options. New South Wales has got – so in the government school sector, they have special schools. So these are, you know, like, I mean, they've got 113 of them overall. Uh, I think at last count, 64 of them were your traditional type special schools for kids with severe disability. Um, and then a growing type is what we call behaviour schools. And then there's also juvenile justice special schools. But the behaviour schools are quote, for students with disruptive behaviour, students whose behaviour cannot be managed in their home school. And then there's, there's I won't get into the, the details of it all, but there are different types of special school or, or behaviour school. But the kind that we were in were for supposedly kids who were just disruptive, that they didn't have any kind of disability that basically their main problem was that they just mucked up at school. When you actually get into these schools, they're not like that at all. Um, so lots of mental health diagnoses. Out of the 33 boys, 25 of them had a diagnosis of ADHD. Some were medicated, you know, some weren't, whatever. We had a couple of boys with autism in the group. Um, we had one, like a lot of them had anxiety. Um, so, and the other characteristic I think about them is that they had been, they had been failing school pretty much from the day that they began and spent a lot of time on suspension. So suspension was being used as a way of keeping these kids out of school. So just as one example, we had an 11-year-old in this sample who had spent 18 months travelling in his dad's truck because as soon as he would get back into school, he would get targeted. And this is the, the behaviour school principal telling me this. And he would get targeted until he would blow, which wouldn't take long, and he'd be out again. So it was, you know, these kids were probably a little bit similar to the types of kids you get in flexible learning options, but the difference is that they are directed to go to these schools. It's not a choice. So it's directed by the either the region, regional placement panel or whatever, and their parents don't have a choice either. Okay, so in your paper you kind of rounded things out with two wicked problems that you described. So I thought we might we might touch on them because I thought they were really important. The first wicked problem was essentially the academic school curriculum. And here we can kind of there's a, there's a few different discourses or points of view that are held around this kind of idea. And I think that both of them are legitimately held by individuals who would we, we would consider progressives um in this space. So the first is essentially that it's unfair for us to subject all students to an academic 
curriculum. It's, it's an unrealistic kind of expectation. It's not what all students want. Um, some would like more vocationally focused ones. And the, the reason that we, uh, the fact that we force many students to undertake this academic curriculum is, is not, not a good idea and not reasonable. The other view, the other view is essentially that all students can learn no matter what. If, we do, if we're doing our jobs properly, um, we'll be able to teach every student to read and write and do some mathematics. And if we don't do that, we have failed them. What's your can can we reconcile? Yeah, can, can can we reconcile these two the two views? I think in an ideal world, um, that absolutely that it would be fantastic if we could. You know, I'd love everyone to, to be like that at university too. You know, I would love um, to be teaching at the level that I would like to teach at at university and I can't do that uh, because even at university, even at doctoral level, there are differences between students. There are differences in their preparation, differences in the way that they interpret, all of that sort of stuff. So I think we do have to be flexible on on that front. But I think... At the end of the day, I'm a pragmatist, so I actually don't I don't subscribe to this, uh, you know, progressive, traditional, um, and I actually have, I can be quite, um, I guess, I can have a foot in many different camps. So, so I think some of my teacher colleagues or teacher education colleagues are horrified by the fact that I actually think that teaching phonics is a good thing. I believe that we should teach um, number facts and times tables. We should drill those things. So I can have quite, I think, what some people would say contradictory views. And I have those views because... With some children in particular, it's actually going for an explicit rote type approach is what those students need. So, I, you know, this new maths sort of approach where it's all about uh, mental maths and coming out with all these different types of strategies, that's completely confusing to some children. So, you know, I, I think, um, yeah, I've, I'm... I have an issue first and foremost in trying to, I guess, pigeonhole anybody. On the second part of being a pragmatist, the the project that I'm running at the moment, which is a longitudinal study, which was it was inspired by this project. So it's a longitudinal study following children from prep, the first year of school in Queensland, through to the end of grade five, because I'm trying to understand how, where the cracks occur. And I have to tell you, it's horrifying, um, really horrifying research. We're finding them everywhere. And, and we are watching, and there's 250 children in this study, and we are watching them fall through the cracks. And that's really hard as a researcher because, you know, it, it feels awful 
to know that that maybe if you do this or you do that or you call attention to something or other that maybe something different could be done. But um, I think part of the issue that we have is that we have to be able to track where these things are going and how they happen. So in terms of the, the question about academic curriculum versus, you know, something else, the pragmatist in me says you are always going to have children coming to school with different different starting points, different abilities, different likes. You're always going to have teachers who are of different capabilities. You're going to have different schools that have different approaches. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, when I, th I think it's a bit of a pipe dream, to be honest, to say that, for example, I'll give you an example, which is these kids were totally not interested in learning Shakespeare. Nobody's going to get them to do that. So is it is is the best thing to do to just, you know, let's keep going along that road because we value Shakespeare and we think it's a good experience for them? Uh, frankly, I think that that is a bit of a stupid approach, really, because they're not going to do it. <laughs> it's just not going to work. So I think we have to deal with the realities that are in front of us. It's interesting because I think that the many, I could say, many privileged or middle class, well educated teachers coming into, uh, coming into the profession probably have some. And I think there was an article that you even tweeted about something like superhero teachers or something like that. Um, probably come into the profession thinking that their role and their duty is to come and save these low SES struggling students and and you know deliver the academic curriculum where it hasn't been delivered before and raise them out of poverty through this through this method so but but i mean is is what you're saying against that are you saying that's unrealistic are you saying it's something we should be hoping for but can't get there or, or what would you say to that i think i think there's an unhealthy dose of elitism in there in that you know so okay um my son this year ended up failing English in the whole of first semester, which, which is not going well for him right now. But the reason that that happened is that he was doing Shakespeare. He didn't think it was important. He also doesn't think that Year 10 is important. <laughs> he thinks he's got time to pull it around. And I'm like, yeah, okay. But... I don't think Shakespeare is the only important thing to learn in English. So I was absolutely overjoyed and, you know, cheering his teachers because second semester, what's he studying? Jasper Jones. That's a far more relevant text. You know, so when they choose things like Tomorrow When the War Began or, um, you know, there are some really important texts that cover, you know, uh, issues that are relevant to young people. And, and the intellectual work involved is not about, you know, trying to understand Shakespearean bloody language. It's not. It's about the ideas and the conceptual sort of work that you do 
in relating that, you know, the story of so what they're doing uh, next term or no, this later this term is relating the story of Jasper Jones to To Kill a Mockingbird. And I'm standing there absolutely cheering, you know, his English teachers are ace because, you know, th that's really deep intellectual work. But, but if we just say, we could, you know, we follow that whole elitism, canon, literary canon type thing and we say, um, no, like, what's that school in England, um, Michaela, where they're teaching Chaucer to 12-year-olds? I don't think that that's necessary. There's academic work and then there's academic work. And I think what these kids uh, in this paper were saying is that the stuff that we're doing at school is not relevant to what I want to do with my life. Um, so, yeah. Another argument that could be made um, is that we develop an interest in things that we learn more about. So, and so I mean, these students who are saying that, you know, this academic curriculum isn't relevant to me, they might not actually be talking about Shakespeare. They might be talking about tomorrow when the war began. So, could it be the case that maybe there's some threshold that we just need to keep those bums in seats and, and get some stuff in their brains to kind of get them over that threshold till they go, oh, actually, maybe, you know, maybe this does have some relevance to my life. Or maybe this you know, as just an, an intellectual exercise is stimulating. Yeah, look, I think it's a nice idea, definitely. You know, if we can keep the bums in the seats long enough, can we, can we get them to be interested in this? And I guess my question to that comes back to why, which is like, okay, so if we, if we start them off on tomorrow when the war began, why do we have to get them to Shakespeare? Like, can we not? So it, it does come back to that question of what is the purpose of, of education, which I think is, is probably one of the most fascinating questions about education that there is. And, and I think there are, it's interesting to look at the way that education is, is talked about, but also the way that it's being enacted in different countries, because it's, it has turned into something that is very instrumental, uh, like instrumentalist. It's very, it's all about achievement. It's all about, you know, very much about economics. And, you know, it's the, the actual purpose of education in terms of someone being exposed to different ideas and developing the human, the person, I don't think that there's a lot of focus on that. And I think you can do that in lots of different ways, not necessarily through, um, you know, like, so I've heard the quote, um, the best that has been thought and done or something in terms of um, English literature. Well, oh, there's so many things wrong with that. You know, in, it's why I like Jasper Jones, for example. It's, you know, that's about, it's contemporary. It has an Indigenous young person in it. It deals with racism. It, you know, I, sorry, Shakespeare, how can our young people, all our young people connect 
with what Shakespeare was on about, especially in something like Hamlet. I even I don't connect with that. <laughs> I studied literature. I think my question has been touched on a little bit. I was kind of interested in just exploring what is the difference between academic learning and vocational learning, or I think you call it technical learning in your um, piece or in your research paper. Um, So I guess if we're trying to imagine what might be something that's more appropriate for um, young people that are disengaged, yeah, what what do those terms actually mean? What is the difference? (laughs) Well, I suppose, I mean, what we were doing was reporting what these boys were saying. Um, and, you know, there's enough of these boys around the country to, I think, make these their points and their voices significant. So, and you can see that they, they themselves were struggling to make that distinction. Mm-hmm. So, you know, on page 249 where Michael is saying, uh, it's boring, like learning's easy, like it's not, I don't care about it, I like it, but it's, I don't know, it's good, like I want an education. Mm. So they were also finding it very hard to articulate, but I think essentially what they were trying to say was that they wanted something that they could, that they could understand, but that they could see leading to something, um, leading for a lot of them, about leading them out of the situation that they were in, in terms of coming from, you know, impoverished backgrounds. Um, you know, they, they all talked about that in terms of wanting a better life for themselves. And they did see education as um, the, the way to do that, but they didn't see the relevance of some of the stuff that they were being um, told to do at school. School, particularly in mainstream, yeah. um, there was a bit of a distinction around what they were doing in the behaviour schools, but I think that that's because um, what was there was much more practical, hands-on. So the school was trying to develop things like um, or get them into certificates and stuff like that. I think the kids had kind of, that worked with them in that they they could see an end point. And that I think is something really interesting that I've, I've found after talking to a lot of these kinds of kids for a long time is that for a 13-year-old who doesn't like school, the next five odd years stretches out like eternity, right? <laughs> I mean, think back to yourself at 12 or 13 and you know, it's like, oh, that's forever away. I mean, my 15-year-old thinks year 12 is next, like in the next decade, right? So they don't think in the same ways that we do. And for them, they saw the certificates that they were doing within the and the TAFE kind of pathway, they saw that as achievable and desirable because it's like you do it and then you've done it and you've got it. So you've got a credit. You know, you've got something tangible for the work that you've done. 
for them, school stretches out like this kind of um, what is it all for? They don't understand that. Do you see what I'm saying? You've touched on a lot of concepts there that I think are really important to drawing that distinction between what we think about as academic learning and then technical learning or vocational learning. Um, and you're saying that, you know, what they're enjoying is that it's hands-on, they're actually doing something, that there's a tangible purpose there. But I guess what I find, I don't know, disappointing about the way that that is often thought about by people is, you know, there's subjects, you know, around science and English and history, and they can be made hands-on and relevant and with a tangible purpose because there are, you know, professions where people are doing things and they're, you know, dealing with problems that are real. But I guess in the school context, often kids are just expected, you know, to learn as an end in itself and to kind of put a test result or competing against their peers academically is the reason that they're studying. And I kind of wonder whether these students, you know, if I guess academic learning was pitched at an appropriate level and they were able to connect to it and they were actually doing something a bit practical, they might connect to it in the same way that they connect to woodwork or making music or all the other subjects that are offered, which um, don't lead to the same sorts of careers. So I think, yeah, I don't know, this is just something that occurred to me. Yeah. Um, what do you think about that? Is that is it a distinction about pedagogy or? I think that, um, and I, I think one of the challenges that, that we have is that there's so much pressure placed on teachers, and you know, I mean, it was interesting reading what Andreas Schleicher said earlier this week where he's criticising Australia for, I don't know, just about everything. But the point that was being made, um, I think, about the number of teaching hours that Australian teachers are doing and how crowded our curriculums are and all of that sort of thing, I, I actually think he was on point in there because it's very, very difficult for teachers to be able to develop that kind of learning uh, or those kinds of learning experiences when they are being, you know, doing face-to-face teaching as much as they are. So in terms of being able to, I'm going to use that word, <laughs> differentiate, <laughs> but, um, but what I mean by that is I guess to be able to interpret the curriculum so that it does fit with the kids that you have in front of you, that we're not giving teachers enough time to do that. There's also, as you were talking, there's another point that I was thinking about, and and this I think is a massive challenge for teachers as well, which is developmentally there can be huge differences um, even be you know in adolescence, between adolescents. And you know, it's interesting that we've we've kind of started saying, oh, you know, the male brain doesn't sort of mature until 25 or whatever. I know mine certainly didn't. <laughs> but, I mean, if you think about young kids, I think sometimes we have to give ourselves a bit of a break because there, sometimes teachers can deliver the most 
fantastic bells and whistles lesson and and the kid is sitting there going, eh, you know, and it's so, I mean, my son's upstairs right at the moment and and I was so excited when he brought home this history assignment that he's got to do because it's on Malcolm X and I'm like, look at him. You know, it's wonderful that he's been given that opportunity to do something like that. And and had a lecture with him this afternoon because there he was just regurgitating with Wikipedia and I went off my nut at him and said, hey, hang on a minute, that, that is disrespectful to that man. You need to understand about, like, who is Malcolm X? Yeah, fine, you can say where he was born and when he was born and when he died and all that sort of stuff, but that's not the important stuff really. The important stuff is why he came to be. Why was he doing what he was doing? So you need to know about slavery. You need to know about segregation and desegregation and those sorts of things and then told him to watch Eminem's latest um, rap about Donald Trump. <laughs> I don't know how we got onto that, but anyway, but we did. I was just trying to get him to understand that those opportunities are and that kind of learning is valuable and for him to, I guess, treat it with a bit more respect. Does that completely throw you off? <laughs> Linda, I've got another question here. You can't see me, it's Sophie. Um, by the way, I used to teach um, at TAFE before I was a primary teacher. Um, yeah, yeah, I taught marketing, so I know about the vocational teaching too. I'm just curious that something, you know, quite often it's said that, you know, right-wing politicians are all for vocational education because it's training these children to be little widgets that can work in their factories. Um, and, you know, somebody left-wing might be less for it because they don't necessarily want people just to fit into the system. And the other issue with vocational education is we don't know what careers we're training children for because half of them don't exist at the moment. So I guess that's the danger with making something work-related is we don't know what the work is we're training them for. So is there something... Have you ever thought about something between the academic dry stuff and the really vocational stuff which might then become out of date? Or, you know, they might want to do it when they're 13, but they might be of a different opinion when they're 20. Yeah, look, that's a fantastic question. Um, thank you for asking that. I think where I started with, and I think that, that um, this is really important for uh, readers of paper and, and listeners to this podcast to understand which is that these kids, and there's a lot of them out there, so the lady with, who's in the flexible learning, you, you know what I'm talking about. So these kids, when I was writing this paper and I was listening to what they had to say, I had to challenge some of my own beliefs because I, you know, I do value academic learning. I think it's really important. Obviously, it's something I love. But I had to temper that with the realisation of what's in front of them. And, and for these kids, that future is that they, they will never get a job. They have been in um, families where no one's had a job. They, um, you know, it's so for me, I had to, when I actually, because I knew these kids and 
spent time with them, um, it became personal, really. Um, but also the sense that you have to put aside the beliefs that you might have and think about, so for example, while all, while I was writing this paper, um, I think Julia Gillard was still in and, you know, there was all sorts of things happening with the Australian curriculum and all that sort of stuff. And for me, I sat there and thought, yeah, hang on, we have all these highfalutin beliefs that we talk about and we argue about as educators and, and all the rest of it, but if these kids don't get somewhere, they will either end up dead or they will end up in jail and any job is better than that. So for me, I think there are so many of them as well. And I think sometimes the people that are making the arguments about we should be teaching Shakespeare and we should be doing this and the rest, they haven't met these kids. They don't know the, the kinds of circumstances that they're living in or what they're going to be in later. So I honestly couldn't give a shit about some of those some of those arguments, those academic arguments, because what I'm concerned about is that these kids get a chance in life and they won't if we continue arguing and if we don't fix the the barriers that they face. So does that make, answer your question at all? Sort of. I guess it's really, to me, the barrier is to get them engaged in what they're learning and it's kind of what can we give them to learn that will engage them. So part of that is, is it work focused? But then I guess my, I've got two caveats actually for that. One is they might find something that isn't within their sphere right now that they didn't know about that they absolutely love because some of those kids, their sphere can be quite narrow because they don't have the same opportunities outside of school as a, a middle-class kid. Um, and, and I guess my second thing would be, um, yeah, just that, you know, if we make it very narrowly vocational like Germany or something, that then what they have been trained for may, you know, may also be obsolete and that also ensures that they have no future economically. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you on that. And and that's one of the reasons that I mentioned Finland and not Germany. So, I mean, Germany has started to change that. And they've also, um, I think it's reflected in their PISA results that it has um, started helping in terms of equity. But I think in the Finnish system, there is more parity of esteem. Um, so if you're going into the the vocational school in Finland, you can move out of the vocational school, but you can also go to university from the vocational yeah. school. So, and I think, you know, Victoria tried that with the BCAL, and I, that was, you know, something that they tried to do. I'm, I'm not sure that it has had quite the, in, the positive impact that it could. Maybe if, um, if our governments... I guess paid more attention to this and spent a little bit more time developing policy and developing it well. Problem, I think, for education is that it's it runs on an election cycle. And, you know, some things are too hot to touch sometimes. I mean, so, okay, in the last Queensland election, the Labor Party came to government claiming that they were going to fix TAFE. I don't think they have. 
you know? <laughs> it's like, so in the midst of all of this, I guess, mess and, and whatever, you know, I'm thinking about these particular kids and and the sad thing is that this, the longitudinal study that we're doing at the moment, it's in disadvantaged schools, right? So we are seeing these children and absolutely, if I could wave a magic wand and say from the minute that they come into prep um, or kindergarten in other states, the minute that they come in, that we're going to, you know, do everything that we possibly can and support them properly, which is what I'm trying to achieve out of that project, then we get some sort of universal coverage and then we will put them in a position where they can have, you know, we can have an academic curriculum and that they can be achieving academically. Absolutely. But I don't think that that's, that we're ever going to get 100% full coverage. And honestly, that is because there are too many variables in place and too many cracks through which these children fall. So the question then becomes, what do we do with the children who are falling through, the children who don't know their number facts, but, you know, the children who, who by the time they're 15 can't read? You know, what do we do with those kids? Because they are hell on wheels by the time they're in year five. So we have to start working out at that point, well, not at that point, but in high school, I think we could start making learning more accessible to these kids. And it doesn't, I mean, when we're making that distinction between academic and, and practical, like another commenter said um, before, we can make, I guess, academic learning more practical, if you know what I mean. So I'm not saying that it's an either-or. What I'm saying is that I think we're too far, the pendulum is too far in one way. Thanks, Linda. I have um, sort of a longish question. I hope it's not too long. I'm really interested in the behaviour or alternative schools and the resources of those schools. Um, you wrote in the paper that students like ours who, who go to behaviour schools, they're not lacking in aspirations um, all of them want to do something with their futures. I guess what I'm interested in is do behaviour and alternative schools have the resources to support really diverse aspirations? And by that I mean um, there'll be students in these schools who, who love hands-on learning, who really thrive on practical learning, on targeted learning, but there is a small percentage of students who do want to go to uni and do – do we owe them that in in these small schools with limited resources? Should we specialise these schools into hands-on, le- into ap- more applied learning or should we be offering these students the same kind of opportunities that if they want, should, should we stretch our resources to provide the breadth and depth of study for those few students as well? Does that make sense? It's a long question. Yes, it does. The, so I have to restrict my my comments to behaviour schools because that's, you know, where we did the research. Those schools are actually funded, well, some of them, um, so they're all funded at different rates. And some of them receiving 10 times per student the amount that 
the local high school would get if that student went there, right? So some of these schools are getting a, a lot of funding and the outcomes are not good. Overall, they're not good. And part of that might be because the support is, or a lot of that is probably because the support is coming so late. So, um, you know, these kids were on average 13 and, and were very damaged young people. So I think if the, if the same level of support had been put in when they were in um, kindergarten, year one or year two or year three, to be able to help keep them up with the other kids, um, you know, in their year group or whatever, it would have been a different story. But in the main, these schools are not really equipped to be able to bring the, the students from where they are when they get there to where they need to be. Definitely not to go to university in the main. And part of that is because um, these schools are staffed on a primary school level. So the teachers, most are primary school teachers. So, and the types of, well, I guess, the, I mean, the, you know, the curriculum is, the curriculum is not fantastic. There's a lot of cooking. There's excursions. Uh, the kids go for half a day. There's there's not a lot of. There's a lot. What they do extremely well, most of them, is relationship work, which is important. And the kids say that they prefer being there. Half of them say said that they wanted to go back to mainstream, but they said that because um, of peers that they wanted an opportunity to, to either go back to their friends or to make friends because, you know, behaviour schools weren't a great place to do that. One of the schools that we worked with was especially good and one of the things that they did that was so fantastic was that they connected up with the local TAFEs and they worked really hard at getting their, their kids into, you know, low-level courses at TAFE. And they could only do that when the kids reached a certain age, but they were actually really good at getting these kids to complete Certificate 1s, complete Certificate 2s. The, the other, some of the other schools were more focused on welfare, and on relationship building and and so the kids never progressed and and never turned up. I'm so desperate to ask another question about accountability beyond engagement um, and I'm so interested in it because well at my school and I work in an alternative school we've had a number of students successfully go to uni and not just those entry level because you did some community certificates certificates yeah. But they studied the subjects and they earned an ATAR and they did it and they got in because they worked hard. Thoughts about accountability beyond engagement? Are these schools being held to account by anyone for their outcomes? My answer to that is um, 
not in my view. I think these a lot of these schools go under the radar, and um, these and I'm still talking about behaviour schools in New South Wales. Um, so, I mean, just to give you an idea, um, so the absenteeism is absolutely huge. So we have published another paper, which you might be interested in, and it's called um, Chasing, uh, Chasing Ghosts with Lollies, Chess and Lego. I can send Ollie a link to it if you like, or I can send him the PDF. So Chasing Ghosts with Lollies, Chess and Lego, and it's really, um, it's, it was a cathartic <laughs> paper for me to write because this project nearly killed me. It was so hard to to work with these young people because they were never there. And at the school that I mentioned, they were pretty, you know, much better um, at keeping their students there. But one school, which was staffed for 28 and receiving uh, funding for 28 students, um, and this particular under that's three times the level of um, an average high school student. Um, we never, in all the time we were in the school, saw more than four students there. Never. Most of the time, there was either none or one. So in terms of do I think they're all successful? No. Do I think that there's enough accountability? No. Do I think that we could be doing things better, yes, <laughs> because the other disturbing thing we found is that about 40% of, well, according to the department's own statistics, about 40% of kids go back to their mainstream school, right? Out of our 33, only one ever did. Only one ever did. Three went to juvenile detention. One uh, died. So uh, he died because he was not at school and um, he was on one of those push bikes that has a, a, like a little motor on it and the police saw him flash their lights and he thought they were going to chase him so he, he tried to get away and um, got hit by a four-wheel drive and a van. He was 14. No, actually, he was 13. So I don't believe that this is the way to go. And the, I think in terms of the learning that they're doing, the kids themselves complained about it. The, kid, the kids themselves talked about, you know, this isn't, this isn't going to help me. So, and that's part of the reason that they weren't there. So the school that really was doing um, things well um, was a big one, big school, uh, big behaviour school, but they were the ones that were connecting them in with the industry. They were the ones that they put together um, an apprenticeship with, who's the chef of, of Aria? the red-headed guy, Michael somebody or other. Anyway, really prestigious restaurant. They put an apprenticeship together for one of their kids. So 
Those schools are achieving or can achieve something. So I was just thinking, because I've had a similar experience with schools which are kind of alternative last resort schools, but I think, and I agree with you, and I that, like, experience, yeah, resonated that maybe they're not being held to account and they're not teaching the sorts of things that students are interested in, students aren't attending, all those issues. But I think the schools that need to be held to account are really the ones that they're getting kicked out of to begin with because often the teachers that I saw, they were working so hard and doing so much around, you know, welfare and managing these students' anxiety and addiction problems and social problems, all that stuff. They're basically caseworkers, you know. They don't have time to plan amazing educational experiences and, you know, there's not enough kids there to to hold those experiences down. I mean, those kids, you know, need to be amongst a whole lot of peers who are well-adjusted and not having the same sort of intense issues that they are in order to have that, you know, normal social life and be able to engage in something. I just think the idea of kicking these kids out and concentrating all those problems together is just such a awful situation to begin with. I mean, yeah, that's the problem in my opinion. That was all I wanted to say. I think, you know, that there's there's a whole range of issues feeding into all of this, and one of them is school markets. You know, I think all of this is kind of the – there are perverse incentives to um, – to get kids out of schools, um, out, you know, in terms of you know, exclusions and all the rest of it, or to move kids on because those kids are bad for numbers, bad for your numbers. And, I mean, it's – and we're watching it already in the Longitudinal Project. You know, we, we have watched where our – we're supposed to be following, in particular, our sort of baby usual suspects, you know. Um, these The kids who we think are on this kind of trajectory and we're trying to understand how that happens. And, and it's really interesting because um, <laughs> we keep losing the kids. They disappear from those schools. Uh, they end up in special ed units um, and when you go into those special ed units and you see them watching videos, like seriously, that is not going to add to this, not going to help that child ever get back into a mainstream classroom. If there's, And, you know, so I've been in support classes where children are sitting there playing video games and it's <laughs> those kids are in the early years of school, and it's exactly what happened to these boys, and they will never um, be able to engage with an academic curriculum if if that's what, you know, the learning that they're getting. So I do, I completely agree with you. I do think, though, rather than just the schools, um, we also have to hold governments to account because they are the ones that decide, they make decisions that, I guess, set the parameters for behaviour of schools. And if if schools are doing things like using suspension or so in my uh, argy-bargy with Andrew Bold over the weekend where I made the comment about, you know, 
where there is a practice of inflating um, behaviour and, and inflating, um, you know, what might be going on with a kid, that is rife in schools. That happens and there are reasons for it and there are perverse incentives that are created by the policies that involve funding for students with disability um, and, you know, in terms of being able to get support. So if teachers, you know, or principals want support for a child, they have to make it out that that child is a, is a serious case or they'll get nothing. So, you know, I do think that, yes, the mainstream schools that these kids came from um, didn't do everything that they needed to do or could have done, but I also think that they are responding to the conditions that have been set. Um, so we need to we need to try and change those conditions. So that was wicked problem one. <laughs> wicked problem two. Um, wicked problem two was about the availability of coherent and viable pathways. Disaffected students. I just wanted you. I wanted to ask you, in you know, 140 characters or less. No, not really. But uh, if you could concisely answer, um, what is your vision? What should these pathways look like for these students? If you you talked about waving a magic wand before, if you could wave a magic wand and kind of design a coherent system that isn't piecemeal as it is now that you described it is, what would that look like? Um, I have a secret wish which is that um, rather than the system that we currently have where high school learning is set out with this in, you know, indeterminate journey of learn this, then learn this, and we don't really know why we're learning this, and all that sort of stuff, I would like it if we could perhaps modularise it so that, children from year seven can start thinking about pathways, can start thinking about subjects. And, you know, it's, it's almost like the way that we organise university learning, I would like to see that in high schools where, um, and at the end, because at the end of, say, you do, I don't know, Education 101, right, you've done it. You've got a credit for it. It's it's locked in the bank. But the way that we do high school, it's not like that. And everything comes down to this high stakes year at the end. And for these 13-year-olds, they can't ever see themselves getting there. And they certainly can't see themselves being successful in it. And I think there's a whole bunch of kids in year 12 who'd probably benefit from it as well. So that's what I'd actually like to see, where kids can start choosing their learning, and if they choose more vocational subjects, more practical subjects, then good for them. We shouldn't, um, I guess, diminish those options. Cool, and I mean that could involve MOOCs online, it could involve going to other institutions, it could involve experiences outside of school or with people who come in to run specialist little units or whatever. That's, that sounds really interesting. Cool. There were there were two questions in the questions that I sent you that you said you particularly wanted to, or you particularly thought it might be nice if we touched on them. And I didn't leave enough time. Uh, it's it's okay. It's okay. So one of them was, um, the challenge of speaking about these kind of issues without reinforcing some of the stereotypes that are already there. So we've talked about how the challenge of the relative status 
of vocational education when compared to a university degree. But at, this, at the same time, we've also been talking about how the current state of vocational education in Australia is quite dire. So how on earth do we talk about these things without reinforcing those stereotypes? Well, I actually think that some of the business councils are doing a pretty good job of that because what they are saying is that skills are important and going to, they're going to be increasingly important um, going into the future. And one of your other questions um, was about you know, what on earth is going to happen to these kids when automation hits. Um, and that's actually something we've been talking about in my research group because I'm really worried about what's going to happen to these kids because, and, and not just these ones, but, uh, you know, many more sort of join their ranks. That's what I'm worried about. So I think, yes, I think what we need to start doing is there is so much dichotomization about, you know, academic subjects being, um, you know, more important, um, more more valuable, and I don't see it that way. I see it in terms of maybe um, there is perhaps a hierarchy of of knowledge, but not that one thing is knowledge and another isn't at all. Um, so, but also there's you know those. Uh, what gets called vocational education, all that sort of stuff. That's not really important stuff in there. You know, like we used to have technical colleges and technical, you know, what later or institutions where engineering was taught. Now engineering is in universities. Like marketing never used to be in university. It, it wasn't something that you needed a university degree to do. So over the last sort of 20-odd years, we've, we've actually created this dichotomy ourselves. I don't think we necessarily have to do that. So it's maybe about changing the way that we talk about these things um, so that we avoid doing what you what you Got it. And the final one that you wanted to talk about, I, I found it quite interesting. In the abstract of your, of your paper, you had the line, um, Contrary to popular opinion, our research finds that these, quote, ignorant jobs, Tomlinson 2012, do value education and do know what it's for. I don't even know what education's for. Linda Graham, what is, what is education for? Ollie, really? <laughs> well, I mean, as I said, it's to learn and to get a job. And, I mean, I think it's a little bit more than that. <laughs> But the story that I was going to tell you is, um, okay, so I've mentioned my 15-year-old several times tonight. I'm sure he won't mind. Uh, (laughs) He knows I I talk about him all the time. Um, And I've told him, stop doing things that, that, you know, are talking about the conversation. Maybe we'll stop talking about you. But anyway, (laughs) so one of the issues that we are facing at the moment as a family is that if he doesn't pass uh, general English by the end of this year, his school wants him to, uh, basically there's a rule at his school which means that you you will have to take English communications. If he takes English communications, he then doesn't have a prerequisite to universities. But at his school, it's a bit special 
which is that if you don't if you do uh, if you don't do general English, then you can't do any other authority subjects. So all of a sudden, he gets put into building and construction, furnishing studies, all these. Yeah, so he will go full on vocational route. His mother's not happy about that because yeah. <laughs> he's actually no good at that stuff. Yeah, right. So the point is, um, in some of the conversations that I've been having at his school, they've, they're trying to counsel him out of subjects like uh, modern history, right? Because they're saying, oh, you don't have the level of literacy to do that and blah, blah, blah. I have said in no uncertain terms to his head of year, it's not about whether he passes or he doesn't pass. At the end of the day, A, give him the chance to fail, you know, and B, it's I want him to learn about the world. I want him to understand why we've had wars, what was behind that. I want him to have a level of knowledge that, you know, some of it will, will sink in, regardless of whether he writes an excellent analytical essay, at the end of the day, he will know something um, that's worth knowing. So to me, that's the purpose of education, and it's not all about marks. Right, right. Rapid-fire questions. What, what advice, Linda, would you give to your first-year researcher self? Oh, Believe that you can do this. <laughs> mm. Solid yes. Solid advice. Because you are doing it. Um, second question. What's your information diet? For example, where, like what, what blogs do you follow? Uh, is there anyone in particular you'd recommend we follow on Twitter? Are there any journals that you think are important, particularly important for us to look at? I really like the English crowd. Well, one part of the English crowd. <laughs> um. So I like Sue Cowley, um, Darren Simon, Disappointed Idealist. I really like the blogs that Disappointed Idealist writes. And but where's my go-to source? It's really um, more of my downtime, and I seem to have a lot of downtime. <laughs> but actually, it's. Um, I, it's the research literature, so my head is in that most of the time. And then I come out for light relief. <laughs> yeah. And finally, any last calls to action or things you'd like for our listeners to go away and do? Um, I guess, I mean, and I'm probably preaching to the converted knowing um, who some of your guests are today. But um, for me in particular, this particular paper meant a lot to me, and um, you know, particularly because of, well, you'll see in the table, Justin. So Justin was the one who was killed, and when I found out about that, I emailed this paper on Christmas Day uh, in 2015. I emailed this paper to every education minister and every shadow education minister in the country. Heard back from three, and um, like a month and a half later. But my central message from that is that we are failing 
young people who've already been failed before they start school. And if it's not us to fix this, then it's no one. So we absolutely have to try and improve, I guess, you know, fix some of the cracks that they're falling into in the early years of school, really sort of um, come down hard on exclusionary practices that keep them out of school from when they're young, and then but it will fix the pathways that are available to these kids so that when they are out of school, when they do leave, that we're not leaving them on the scrap heap. So that is really um, my simple message from this, which is just remember that these kids exist. Linda Grant, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate and admire your commitment to to these students that you serve and hopefully we'll be able to continue the conversation and learn more about your upcoming research. Thanks. You're welcome and thank you everybody for listening for so long. Yeah, thanks so much. You're welcome. Have a good night. You too, Linda. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ERRR podcast with Professor Linda Graham. As always, you can find show notes with links to all of the resources that were mentioned at www.ollilovell.com forward slash podcast. And if you did enjoy this episode, I'd love for you to share it with your friends and colleagues. If you've really been enjoying the ERRR podcast, I'd love for you to consider supporting its production through Patreon. Patreon is a website that enables podcast listeners to make a small financial contribution per month to support the ongoing production of that show. On top of the time I spend putting together the ERRR, I've also been paying out of my own pocket an audio engineer every episode to try to ensure that the finished product that you receive is of the highest possible quality. If you are an ongoing listener and a fan of the ERRR and value it as a professional learning experience, then please consider making a small monthly contribution to help me cover these costs. Check out www.patreon.com forward slash ERRR to explore the possibility of supporting the show. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week and until next time, keep learning. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au. 